Hi, folks. Hi, I'm Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders, and uh, welcome to the Schatz and Tanya Wednesday show with special guest Rivers McCown. And uh, we're trying out some new software today, and it counted us down with this really cool, like, numbers in the middle of the screen going three, two, one. That was very exciting. I'm excited. It was like anime. I thought I had to start running like this. It was it was amazing. There's lines behind my head showing that I'm I'm running. <laughs> so hello and welcome to our Wednesday broadcast. Uh, you may be watching on twitch.tv slash FB Outsiders, uh, in which case you can interact with us because this is the Ask Me Anything show, and we want to be asked questions about the NFL so that we can uh, riff. But you may also be listening on the Football Outsiders Podcast Network or watching later on YouTube. And in both of those cases, hi, how you doing? Welcome to our show. Uh, you can't ask questions because you're not watching live. But later, you might be watching live. You may ask questions for tomorrow's show. I don't know. Um, uh, so you guys ready to talk some football today? I Hopefully everybody's doing well. They've had their cars taken care of or whatever else you had to do this morning, Mike. <laughs> Got my hair cut. That's why it would be a crime against tonsorial splendor to wear the hat today because I got the freshness. Oh, yeah. It's only when a JP, JP Acosta comes on that we all wear hats. Yes. yes. I, so, did, I didn't get the memo. I'm sorry, guys. Bad <laughs> you're wearing a hat. But you, not, like, you were wearing like fedoras and all kinds of like interesting hats when we were wearing hats. Yes. Uh, I have as my first thing on the list of things to talk about. Let's talk about the Eagles pass run ratio with Mike. <laughs> so I'm curious what your thoughts are on Philadelphia on Monday night football, handing the ball off to running backs three times. Now I actually went back and looked, you can't search for just running back handoffs in uh, pro football reference. And so I looked through our workbooks. I just looked through last year mm -hmm. and um, and this year. Tampa Bay had only nine carries by running backs in week three. So that's the second lowest number this okay. year. Last year, Tampa Bay had four. I remember that game. Yeah. Nope. The Saints. Wow. That was that was the one we defended given Sunday too. Yeah, that was one where Brady got sacked like seven times, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then there's a, the next week. Chicago had only four, but that's because we're counting Corderell Patterson last year as a wide receiver, and we probably should have been counting him as a running back. And this year we're counting him as a running back, so never mind that. Right. So I don't know historically if you can find a game with lower than three running back carries in a game. That's crazy. It, it it's crazy, and when you start talking about run pass balance. Everybody goes to their bunkers. Everybody goes to their familiar hills. It's like, ah, oh, you know, it's meaningless. You can't talk about that. Oh, you want to establish the run. And, and they go through these things. And th there's there's value to that. You know, the idea that you say, well, they only run the ball 12 times or they only run the ball 14 times and they should have established the run. And we're a football outsiders twitch class. We know that's silly. We know teams get taken out of the running game. We know that it's not necessarily uh, efficient early on the game. But we're not talking about 12 carries. We're not talking about nine carries. We're talking about three carries. We're talking about three carries. This is not an absence of balance. This is a game plan that went completely amok. And the thing that gets me, because if you're going to tell me you're going to run options, and Jalen Hurts ran several options, so that changes things a little bit, where he could have handed off and he ran. The Eagles got the ball on one yard line, on their own one yard line, 99 to score, and they did three passes and out. Okay, so you, you wind up punting, you give back field position. Later in the game, now it's still a two-score game. They're, they're trailing, but they're not. it's not gonzo time. It's the third quarter, two-score games. Eagle gets the ball. Eagles get the ball, I think, at the 11-yard line. Three passing plays and out. Now, when you're backed up to your own wall, the game is still in play. You're backed up. You want to make room for your punter. You're in a position. We're at the one-yard line. That field position type of football still applies. Where you want it, like, let's get the ball to the 20 and kick it or, you know, something like that, get two first downs. That's still meaningful and relevant when you're at the one. And I think to a degree when you're at the 10 as well, they're still trying to do the fire it downfield, fire it downfield, fire it downfield. That's not optimal. That's not optimal against a Cowboys team that had injuries all over their uh, uh, defensive line and linebacking core. And it was just, it was just poor game planning. And I think it really did in this case contribute to a loss that did not have to get as out of hand as it did. I would have to go back and look because I certainly didn't notice during the game that this was happening. I think part of that might be uh, maybe that's the downside of watching the Mannings is that <laughs> they're not tracking things like that. Right. 
uh, like the regular broadcast would. You know, I have to go back and see, but I can't imagine that there weren't a couple of plays where Dallas was playing with a lighter box and they should have audibled into something run-like. And the other thing just thinking about is having Jalen Hurts opens things up for the running backs, right? We know that having a mobile quarterback creates room for running backs because you have to always um, respect the idea that the quarterback is going to keep the ball, but they didn't use that to their advantage at all. I mean, they didn't use that to their advantage. The, Pass rush was teeing off later in the game. They were just teeing off. And, of course, they can tee off because you can give up a 15-yard draw play late in the game when you've got two-score, three-score leads, et cetera. The Eagles' entire offense right now, if you look at the pass charts of Jalen Hurts, nothing, nothing is happening between the numbers. If you're not running the ball, nothing is happening between the numbers. And they rarely throw the ball between the numbers. This is built on screens, downfield sideline shots, and it's shocking, especially for a team that has two good tight ends, that almost nothing goes over the middle of the field. And I think part of that scheme, I think that part of that's Jalen Hurts' comfort level. I don't think he's comfortable what he's seeing over the middle, but he's he's more comfortable firing the sidelines. Um, but no matter what it is, it's not sustainable as a as a quality offense, especially when Jalen, he's got a lot of good attributes. His deep balls come up short a lot. He's firing the ball 30 yards downfield for 35-yard passes and making his guys come back for it. That's not Again, that's not ideal. That leads to interceptions. That leads to problems. So it all comes together to be like, in that game, you should not have been trying to do what you were doing. And, of course, we got that. We got the results. Early in the game, there was a pass to Goddard over the middle. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here we go. They're going to take advantage of Dallas, uh, of Dallas's weakness against short passes over the middle. And then they, they didn't do it very much. Yeah. No, that was it. That, I remember that one. There was also a running play, I think a 20-yard run by Sanders, I believe got called back. The, he had a 24-yarder that did not get called back. It did not get called back, right. So so you run the ball three times, one game, 24 yards. It's it's like we were joking beforehand about the, the Giants with the Daniel Jones option. Better not run that again. You know, he gained 25 yards on that read option, but the next time they'll be ready for it. So don't run it again. Like, that's where you're going right now with, with, with some of the mentality of this play calling. Thoughts, Rivers? Rivers is silent. You're mute, bud. Am I coming in at all? Yes, now you are. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, the, the the interception that hurts through in the I want to say first drive was wildly underthrown. Yes, that's, that's that was that was definitely part of it. The thing that got me the most uh, was the Twitter set going around that they didn't use any pre-snap motion at all for <laughs> the entire game. That's scary to me. That's the kind of thing that you need for a quarterback like Hurts to actually identify guys over the middle and. Uh, they just just do none of it in kind of a, an environment that's shifting that way is a little scary to me. Yeah, no, you're right. That was another issue there. Um, and I'm not Mr. Pre-snap motion is the cure for everything kind of guy, but when you're using none of it, and we've got a team where it's like, oh, we could possibly isolate these tight ends, move them around. We could isolate Devontae Smith, move him around, and you're not doing any of it. That's that's suspect. That's questionable. Yeah, yeah. Our, our, our first question, we've had our first question in the chat. I'm not sure how to answer this. S. Vanderpool says, why is professional football the greatest sport on earth? Mm. That's a great question. Like, why do we love football so much that we do it for a living? All I can say to that is I was in my traditional sports tavern for the one o'clock games, especially with no Eagles because every TV was on. And we're watching the, the Chargers and everything. And I go running over because I see the Lions come back. And then, uh, you know, then the Ravens come back. And that field goal goes up and the 66-yard field goal and it bounces. And I am clapping and jumping up and down like a goofball. And there's people, random people, uh, you know, couples and families eating lunches and they are screaming and jumping up and down. Nobody cares about the Ravens. Nobody, I mean, some they cared about the Ravens eight or nine years ago here in uh, greater southern New Jersey. They don't care about them anymore. They're just excited for this moment. And football provides these moments and, and we get caught up in them. And, and and it's like it gives us a sense of community. And I, I know soccer does that uh, overseas and other places. I know basketball gets that. I don't think any sport does that like football. <laughs> Sorry, Bridget. Yeah, I feel like so- soccer just has – yeah, Bridget Case says, I feel for Detroit fans. That was painful. I just yeah. feel like soccer has so much more slow moments. And I know football does because it has the moments between plays. I feel like it's the combination of the the, the athletic feats – like we cheer for the athletic feats mm-hmm. and then the chess game 
means yep. you can appreciate the game on so many different levels. That's why yeah. I like football so much. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know why fans love football more than they love basketball or I mean baseball involves a lot of waiting, but basketball does not involve a lot of waiting. It doesn't last two minutes, I guess, to a degree. It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me another timeout, Coach. <laughs> Rivers, how does a Texan fan keep loving football? They don't. Uh, okay. The answer. Uh, but, but like, growing up in Texas, like, it is indisputable what sport is king, what, what gets fed to you all the time, where yeah. you come from. I remember, you know, kind of growing up watching uh, football with my dad every Sunday. That was a really big deal. And I remember winning 10 bucks off of him. <laughs> on the uh, Atlanta Minnesota NFC Championship game. That's uh-huh. that's that, that's going to date me pretty well. But yeah, that was when I was about like 13 or 14 I think. And, and yeah, that it's 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 in your blood here and you you I would I I hadn't considered any other sport this high, this heavily for sure. It, it, it's it's actually a really interesting question because there're definitely certain parts of the country where certain sports are king. And I live in one where it changed. And I wonder if it's now going to change back. Right? Like <laughs> If you think of if you had to define every city as a blank town, right? Yeah. Texas is football land. Dallas yeah. and Houston are football towns. Right. Boston was a baseball town. Right. right? Like St. Louis is a baseball town. Right. Um, was a baseball town for for most of history. Even even when the Celtics were winning all those championships, the Red Sox were king here. And now the Patriots are king. And the question is. In the next couple of years, as they, you know, don't have success. Right. I mean, even if they go to wild cards, whatever, it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. Is that going to change? We'll go back to baseball being king or will, is football now? Because if you said to me, like, what sport are people interested in talking about? Not the local team, like talking about nationally. Yeah. It's football by far. Right. It didn't used to be. Right. I think that's national. I think that's driven by legal gambling, which you will someday get in Massachusetts. We're all rooting for you someday. (laughs) Fantasy and things like that, because that's what the explosion of national interest where, yeah, you're in a Philly bar and one guy's watching the Texans and one person's watching the Ravens, et cetera. That's where that comes from. And I'll tell you right now, you talked about uh, different towns, Detroit, Bridget. That's a hockey town. That is a hockey town. That's a hockey down. And it was painful, but you guys booed Calvin Johnson at halftime. So you had what was coming to you. So did they really? I missed that in my craziness this weekend. I missed that they booed Calvin Johnson at halftime. That's terrible. Eagles fans did that to somebody. If they did that to Andy Reid this week, it would lead on every talk show. Alliance fans would be like, oh, Calvin Johnson's arguing with the the whatever, with the uh, organization about some dumb thing. Let's boo him. That's great, guys. That's great. You have you have one great player per generation. Boom. Bridget says she's not a Lions fan. Dear Lord, <laughs> no. No. Well, good for you. I, I would say that uh, uh, my thoughts on Texas not having legalized gambling either, but oh, that would yeah. involve talking about the Texas government, and I believe I'm getting electroshocked as I say those words. So, uh, <laughs> what else you got? Yeah, yeah, we try to avoid politics and. Uh, <laughs> You have a lot of them down there right now. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> Come to Jersey. Everything's legal here. Except I, without a mask. You, also, it's interesting, you, don't, you don't have what we have and what Mike in Mike's area has, which is living close to a state border. Because with, with legal gambling being legal in New Hampshire and I believe Rhode Island and coming soon in Connecticut, there is no reason why it is not legal in Massachusetts. They have that at Edge Sports headquarters, too, because Edge Sports headquarters, for people who don't know, is in Louisville, Kentucky, right on the Indiana border. And all you have to do is drive five minutes over the border and you can open your app and bet Mm -hmm. because it recognizes by GPS that you're suddenly in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And so, like, if they're going to have betting in Indiana, you might as well have it in Kentucky. Right. Right. You can't, you know. But where you are, Rivers, you're not anywhere near any other state so yeah i could go three, i could go three hours east to louisiana and probably gamble i could go three hours north to dallas and be in oklahoma but that's not gambling either <laughs> yeah i don't think oklahoma has it. <laughs> right. does louisiana have it yes they do yeah you can uh, Phil, philbo baggins points out this is the only reason people from louisville visit indiana <laughs> <laughs> yeah go to colts games i guess right 
Right. Um, you can go to Oklahoma and you can raise tigers, man. <laughs> you know, I'll take um I'm gonna take a topic from the end of the show that I was thinking about and do it now because we were talking about Detroit. Mike, in walkthrough today, you wrote about why you think the Lions have reason for optimism. Yeah. Like it's not that they've played that well early, that's they're not like they're the 0 3 team that's surprisingly good in DVOA. We'll talk right. about that team later, but right. you you're you're up for the Dan Campbell experience. I'm up for the Dan Campbell with reservations. I'm far more up for it than I was when he was hired and when those initial things came through. Um, I remember the whole thing when he became the interim head coach after Bullygate. Remember Bullygate with the Miami yep. Dolphins? And, you know, they won a couple of games, and suddenly it's like mm -hmm. he's changed the culture because he put Metallica posters up in the um, <laughs> weight room. And it's like, what kind of goof? How dumb have we become as a society? And that was in 2013, and we got the answer to that. Anyway... <laughs> His whole shtick, it really is. It's a, there is a buy-in from the players. I've been hearing that over and over again. It's more like a Buddy Ryan or a Rex Ryan thing where he says goofy things in the press conferences to draw attention to himself and to kind of be his own personality. What I'm impressed by is their running game. When you watch a Lions game, they run the ball incredibly well between the tackles, slobber knocker. Early in games when the games are still, you know, undecided, they can, they can run effectively against good opponents which means the offensive line is probably pretty good. We all know the tight end is pretty good. The running backs are pretty good. Penny Sewell being back at left tackle yes. has been a very good thing for Penny Sewell. Yes, it has been. And they got the, they've got they got a lineman coming back that's going to have to figure out what to do with as well. So they're starting to see things. I'm seeing things they can hang their hat on. Defense played hard in that uh, Ravens game. They, I mean, it was a misleading score because Marquise Brown kept dropping touchdown passes. But they were getting pressure. They, they defend the run. So – I mean, there's a lot of work to get done. There's nothing at the skill positions, at the speed positions on that roster whatsoever. But there's enough to say, if you're going to talk about the culture changing and a better attitude and a better philosophy from the general manager to the head coach on down, I think all that stuff's true in Detroit, and I think that can pay dividends as the, as the years <laughs> go on. I think cutting Jamie Collins is a good sign. Yeah. Yep. Because I think that suggests we, can un we understand when we have a spent cost. Yes. If this guy is expensive, but he's not getting it done. We got to go somewhere else. Right. Like we understand that. So we'll cut him. Yeah. He would have stayed on that roster or the rest of the year. And like Danny Amendola would have, I know that they have to compete with Houston for some of these guys. <laughs> uh, the Rex Burkheads, but they all would have come in, uh, you know, because we're going to try and turn this thing around and get well, to. Because you know, Patricia's gone. So now Detroit's not trying to sign all the expatriates. Exactly. They exactly. had them previously, they were signing all the expatriates. Now they're signing ex Packers. I don't know. That's why. They have a lot of third receiver types, you yeah, know. That's, that's why the Texans can sign Danny Amendola for only $2.5 million. Very cheap, very affordable. <laughs> <laughs> Competition is right up, baby. <laughs> I think also um, early in the season, right, one of the talking points we had in the offseason was based on stats, the difference between Stafford and Goff is not as big as people seem to think it is. Now, right. what we've seen in the first three weeks is Stafford being better, I think, than oh, yes. we, we expected. Yes, I don't think we've seen Goff being worse than expected. I think Goff is still maybe a little underrated. He's not – I mean, we've seen what bad quarterbacking looks like. Like, he's made some bad decisions. He's not a good quarterback. But I don't know if he's, like, a terrible, horrible quarterback. I'm still feeling kind of okay about that whole – I would have felt better without the 66-yard the, the field goal, but the whole Lions <laughs> over 4.5 thing – yeah, I think we can find those wins. They're down to 3.5 if you want to play the Lions futures. It's down to 3.5. Wish I waited for that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Goff, when he's thrown towards the sidelines, it's a mess. And I can't tell if it's because he's throwing the guys I have never heard of in my life uh, yeah. or if the balls are sailing on him. Probably a little bit of both. Um, he did, of course, have the problem where he couldn't hold on to those slippery balls against Green Bay Packers in the second half. Um, but, yeah, in terms of being able to work function within an offense that's run-heavy, play-action-heavy, Goff is certainly adequate. He's not somebody who has to be replaced tomorrow before the team can go anywhere. They can build around him to a degree. Then they might have to make a decision after they found a receiver or two, an edge rusher, a cornerback or two that's healthy, et cetera, et cetera. They'll be in position. They'll be in position to take a quarterback in next year's draft. I, I just don't know how good those quarterbacks are compared to the ones that came out this year. 
and yeah. a quarterback in next year's draft. Goff is Goff is on the Matt Schaub spectrum for sure. Like he's he's not terrible. Uh, he's got a better arm than Schaub, but he makes almost I would say more mistakes and is even less mobile somehow, which is <laughs> which is amazing to think about. But yeah, he's he's not he's not a problem right now. Right, right. Rat, Rattler. I'm no expert on college football, but I watched a little bit of Oklahoma last week, and Rattler. I'm like. This guy's the number one pick in the draft. He had 13 points. Like his teammates can't be that bad that at Oklahoma. No, that Blake, 13 points is respectable. He's playing Gabbert. They can't run Gabbert. He's going to sit there in a spread system between the 20s and be able to kind of fire passes and be athletic and fool you. Uh, yeah, abort, abort, no bueno. Do not make him your franchise quarterback unless he change unless it changes over the next six weeks. We'll see, but not now. Yeah, a lot of ball game left. Uh, they haven't been running very well at all for sure. But uh, I, I've been like as far as the the best quarterbacks in this class, I've been looking at Malik Willis a lot more, and I kind of think he's got more of the upside. But he's also very small, so he's like small and small school. And that's a combination that I'm very curious how the NFL is actually going to evaluate. Right. Right. Malik Willis being the kid from Liberty, for those who don't yes, know. Yes. I'm assuming started out somewhere else and transferred. Like, he couldn't have – if he's that good, it's hard to imagine he started out at Liberty. I'm not sure. I've not it's very political. Matt Noskow points out, fans were calling for Rattler's backup, who's a freshman. Oh. Useful Baker says, oh, Mil Willis started out – he was originally at yeah. Auburn good. and transferred to Liberty. Good, good, good. Thank you. Um, back to the NFL, Trevor P11. Do you guys think Lamar Jackson is a top five quarterback? Mahomes, Rodgers. I know. My, my answer to the question was going to be the same. Let's start talking about who he is and then figure out if he goes in that. Prescott. Davis Mills. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to Eli you. I'm going to Eli you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. Top five is, is but that's a, that's such a canard. That's such like a little bear trap there. Like he's a, he's a franchise caliber quarterback. But yeah, yeah he winds up being between five and eight. Is that an insult? If so, I'm he's sorry. not. He's not top five. He's a franchise quarterback, but yes. there are more than five franchise quarterbacks. He is not top five. Yeah, I mean, just crazy. last year's passing DYAR. Yeah, Mahomes, Rogers, Brady, Allen. Is right. the top four, and then I mean I think you would take Herbert over Lamar. Eh, I, I'm going with Lamar over Herbert. You Russell Russell Wilson. I'll take Wilson. I think they need that experience. Um, I mean it depends how you count Deshaun Watson these days. That's not. That's um, <laughs> not. <laughs> here's an interesting question though. Right now, who would you rather have, Lamar Jackson or Matthew Stafford? Interesting. Ah, Rivers, you have a bear in this? I'll take Jackson. I think he's one. I don't think he's a top five quarterback, but I think he's one of a kind as a quarterback. Yeah. And that's something that I know people are going to slam him before in the playoffs because whenever anything goes wrong in the playoffs, it's his fault. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, it, that, that, that uniqueness makes him like really valuable to game plan against to try to figure things out for uh, these defenses for sure. Yeah, I've seen him lose more in the playoffs than I've seen Matthew Stafford lose in the playoffs. Matthew Stafford's been in the league 13, 14 years. <laughs> but, but I'm sitting here, and recency bias is powerful yeah. in that I just saw Matthew Stafford throw for six trillion yards and beat Tom Brady. And even on our analytical brains, it's like, no, 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 no. But you're right. If I think about it more, it's like, no, I'll take Lamar Jackson. So I think that it's interesting. I think. It's tough because, like you said, Lamar Jackson is really unique. And we were talking about win-with versus win-because of quarterbacks. And is Matthew Stafford a win-because of – or is he – I think he's proven he's just like the maybe the best of the win-withs. Right. Jackson is a win-because of if you design the offense right and he's doing well. But yeah. he's also been inconsistent. And he's not throwing to Willie Sneed. <laughs> right. He's <laughs> yeah, – I don't know. I don't know. Stafford has shown me so much in these first three weeks. I, you know, with those deep balls to Deshaun Jackson and stuff, I, I might take Stafford over Lamar Jackson at this point. Right. But I definitely think Jackson is in the six to ten range. Right. 
And if Stafford's really a win because of, how come the Lions never won because of him? Like even when he had Calvin Johnson as his number one receiver, I do think the idea that Matthew Stafford, you cannot say Matthew Stafford never had weapons until now. No, right. He had Calvin Johnson. You can say he never had Sean McVay until now. Uh, right. Right. Yeah. But you can't say he never had weapons. He had Calvin freaking Johnson. And Cooper Cup is nice. But mm-hmm. let's all be real about <laughs> who you would choose between Cooper Cup and Calvin Johnson. And they had a defense with the best front four in the league with Damakong Su and Avril and, and uh, all those other guys. Uh, I want to say Vanden Bosch, but I think I just made a name up. But maybe that's who it was. No, name. I think Vanden Bosch. Did no, he, he, was, there. he was, was there. He was there. He was there. He was there. Okay. okay. I thought I just made up a new human. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting Stafford's best year like what was Detroit's best I'm trying to figure out what was Detroit's best year with Stafford they lost the wild card to Dallas that one year right was the best 2014 year. I guess right um, that wasn't the Calvin Johnson there was a controversial catch in that or something if I recall but that was the year that they were 11 and 5 and <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, his his so he had Calvin Johnson and Golden Tate. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a reasonable offensive line: R- Riley Reef and Dominic Reef, uh, right. Larry Warford. Their line had Ezekiel Ansah and Adamakong Sue. Mm-hmm. DeAndre Levy was still playing well. Darius Slay was on that team. He was young. Mm-hmm. Glover Quinn made the Pro Bowl that year. Safety Good player. It's a good, it's a, it's a decent roster and, and, and they performed well, but and you know, here's the idea the that, thing. their offensive coordinator yes. was the same guy who is now getting plaudits for designing the offense for the Los Angeles chargers, Joe Lombardi. Wow. So, somebody, somebody in the, in the chat was saying, well, disjointed coaching and things like that. Well, these coaches seem to be able to do their jobs. Uh, Schwartz did. Okay. Uh, in a, another environment, you know. Yeah, so. and Caldwell is respected. Right. I think respected as a head coach, and Lombardi is getting uh, accolades right now for what the Chargers' offense is doing, even though they're not good in DVOA. We'll get to that. Yes. But um, I mean, Jim Caldwell, useful Baker says Jim Caldwell was his best head coach when he was in Detroit, which has to meet mean something. Yeah. Um, I think Caldwell's again, a, yeah. Caldwell is a well-respected coach. I think what Patricia did after Caldwell shows that maybe we didn't give Caldwell the benefit of the doubt enough. I was definitely eyeing Caldwell as a head coach candidate for the for the Texans when I was doing all this heavy research on who they should hire and who I liked and all that stuff. Yeah. Like he's he's not a, a top of the line. Like oh yes, we've got Jim Caldwell, but he's still <laughs> a really good coach. He's, how do you feel about having done all that research? How do you feel about the the, the time spent of your youth and vitality? on that feels great it feels great <laughs> i'm dead inside <laughs> you know it's funny you're so negative i mean <clears throat> they have been better than expected this year just not in an exciting optimistic for the future way but they have been better than expected. Right. that that's the problem yeah it's great that uh, all the 35 year olds are playing very well and uh, overperforming expectations but then there's also a 2022 season to think about <laughs> <laughs> chat's Bill- blowing up here by the way What'd you say? Pat is blowing up. Uh, Deep Value Better says the Pats prove the coach and culture is greater than raw talent. Not sure if anyone's been watching the last two years of Patriots football with that, but it's. Uh... Yeah, um, <laughs> it's in, been an interesting. I mean, I think some of the argument about last year is that the Patriots had like a four and 12 roster and Belichick coached them up to seven and nine. That's what you hear a lot around here. I mean, we're all used to making excuses for the guy, but. Uh, now they don't have a four and twelve roster. Now they have a seven and nine roster that he needs to coach up to ten and seven. Right, right. So uh, I think this year does teach us a lot about Belichick because he's got he's got guys now. Like I know it's a rookie quarterback, but he should have the guy. He should have enough guys to make the wild card. I think. And we have a Seth Wickersham book that's going to be required reading if we uh, yeah. make sense out of all of this. Um, Bill Houston says. Has Alex Smith ever responded to Football Outsider naming such a feeble metric, although well-deserved, after him? Now that Alex is a member of the media, do you worry about a face-to-face reckoning? On the positive side, if Alex launches a punch at you, it is unlikely to have much power behind it. 
At this point, the Alex <laughs> must have been brought to his attention and must really burn his ass. Did, um, didn't, you, didn't you talk to Kubiak once? I talked to Kubiak once, and I told him that we named our fantasy football projection system after him, and he looked at me like I had three heads. I mean, Kubiak's a fishing guy. If you can't talk about fishing, then you can't really connect with him anyway. I, I, I bet you that Alex Smith has no idea that there's some website out there with a metric that's named after him. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I would hope he would understand that it's somewhat in fun. Like, I mean, you know, Alex Smith also, I think we've been honest, had, was an above-average quarterback in his last few years. Oh, he, he, was, he played good. Uh, you know, he was no Patrick Mahomes, but who is? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when we got into this, when I started, I was a lot more negative, I think, about people in the league than I am now. You do mm-hmm. realize – Well, I guess that's not true. I was more negative about other media members. (laughs) (laughs) Then you meet people like the late Don Banks, and you're like, oh, I really shouldn't have said some of the things that I said. Like, everybody's just trying to do their jobs. Like, let's just be good about each other. Um, You know, I I think I would explain to Alex, like, you know, hey, you you just, you had this tendency, and, and, uh, you know, maybe it's more about the way the offenses were designed where you played, but... It was a thing, and that's what what we did. We called this Alex, and it's nothing against you as a person. Right, and, and what happens is we all wind up at the same watering hole when the players retire, you know, and the players all the time retire and wind up talking to a lot of media members who ripped them at times, took shots at them, were critical of them very publicly, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody has to – it's got to ro- roll off everybody like a duck, so to speak. Um, otherwise no one's going to be able to do business and there's going to be these weird grudges and weird grudges do happen, but they wouldn't be based on the idea that there's a projection or a metric that happens to share the first name with you. I hope, I hope not because we might run into Alex at some point. Uh, Deep value better. What is the last team that made it deep in the playoffs or even to the Super Bowl with just raw superior talent and bad coaching or a toxic culture? 1980s Detroit Pistons. (laughs) <laughs> I think we're talking about the National Football League here. If but. a team existed, and I don't know if they do or don't with that, they would rewrite the bad coaching toxic culture into good coaching and a positive culture. So it's a un, what do you call it? It's an unfalsifiable argument because if I found teams that uh, so look how great these teams were, you know, with the Randy Moss uh, Vikings, for example. It's like you could turn. But they had great coaching. Well, well, prove to me that great coaching. Well, they went eleven and five, so there's a non-falsifiability to that. I would argue that you're right. Bad coaching and toxic culture. I think those are very bad things and and drawbacks. Mediocre, ordinary coaching, and you know, just a not necessarily great culture like the one that was probably in Foxborough for at least the last four or five years. I think those things are often overcome by talent. I would say thirty-five years later, we're finally just embracing that the 86 Mets all did cocaine and all were <laughs> terrible people yes. at that point. And yeah. I mean, like we've buried that for so long. There's almost hagiography to just undig and right. we're just admitting it finally. And it's going to take that long for us to know who that made deep NFL runs is in the same way, basically. And the 1990s Cowboys then, of course, we, again, Jimmy Johnson, unfalsifiable. Yeah. He's got the rings that North Turner was saying, Hey, Emmett, go run behind those five, uh, drugged up monstrous dudes are just killing everybody. And North Turner becomes a coach for 30 years and doesn't do anything. Dave Wanstad, I mean, he's a decent coordinator. This was not a great culture. I'm guessing they had good coaches. They had that talent. Look how great those teams were. Again, it's unfalsifiable because we can turn around and give credit to the coaches that may or may not be warranted. I, I do think there's a difference. I do think you can have a toxic culture, but good coaching. Yes. And you can have bad coaching with good culture. Yes. But there actually was a team that stood out, that jumped out to me with this question. The 2002 Oakland Raiders. Hmm. Okay. Because Gruden was gone. Callahan. And Callahan, look, Callahan is a very nice guy. I actually worked with him once at Eric Mangini's camp for kids. And he's a great offensive line coach. But I don't think anybody thinks he was a good head coach. And their culture, well, who was the guy who disappeared in Mexico like the night before the 
Uh, oh my god he was robbins barrett robbins yes like it's definitely like there was some weird stuff going on and that team collapsed the following year partly because rich gannon suddenly got old but um like that team stands out to me as you know the good coaches may have left for tampa bay and there was some weird culture stuff going on and yet they still made the super bowl yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And you're right. By the way, now I'm I have the song going in my head. Uh, Eric Mangini's Camp for Kids. <laughs> K A M P Camp for Kids. We all have to sing to him and tell him he's a genius. But no, I, th- I think that's a good point. Right. And and those Raiders teams in general, the, the culture was not particularly good. It wasn't very good when Tom Cable was coaching there. It wasn't very good when Hugh Jackson was coaching there. Those teams weren't as successful. But yeah, I think I think that is a pretty good example. That is, I mean, it's hard though, because like you said, you we, we rewrite things after the fact that anytime a team is a winner, that the culture must be good and the yes. coaching must be good. Yes. Um, but that was the first team that came to my mind. My other thought was 2006 Bears. Okay. But I think that's just because now we kind of question Lovey Smith as a head coach right. and as a defensive coordinator. But. <laughs> <laughs> but what Lovey Smith and Ron Rivera were 15 – first, Ron, Ron Rivera was the D.C. on the team. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. We all have a lot of respect for him. And what Lovey Smith was as a defensive coordinator 15 years ago and what he is now are two, I think, different things because the league changes and whether you adapt or don't adapt to those changes. And I don't know anything about the 2006 Bears having a toxic culture. It's hard to define what a toxic culture is. It's like, oh, they've got a guy, a prima donna receiver, or everyone's on coke, which was every team in the 80s. Or <laughs> I, like, I don't necessarily know it until it actually blows up and it's really a thing. Like Adam Gates's clubhouse, like, the final season of Chip Kelly was kind of like that. But sometimes yeah. you don't find out, or, like you don't find out a, a, a culture was toxic until years later, anyway, when somebody writes an expose, like Seth Wickersham. Right, the DeAndre Hopkins thing where he got traded, uh, he was a bad culture fit in Houston. Oh, God. That, well, that, that became him missing practice. Does that does that make you a toxic culture because somebody missed practice? It's like I have a beholder thing for sure, 100%. He forced, he forced Bill O'Brien to go on a three-hour cursing spree around the uh, around the, the uh, headquarters. He forced him to do that by missing a practice. Yes, yes. It never happened before. That's the good thing. <laughs> <laughs> right, or after. <laughs> Uh, S. Vanderpool, general thoughts on why Belichick turned down an in-person meeting with Brady before leaving. Bad Potential bad blood with the legendary duo. And I think F-O-A-S means that's a question for me. Yeah. Uh, but yep. you guys are welcome to give your thoughts. It is really tough for me to have opinions about the, um, the Brady-Belichick breakup because with, first of all, uh, I guess this is a new story this morning. It probably comes from Seth Wickersham's book. With all respect for, to Seth Wickersham, his reporting is great, but then you you see other reports that disagree with his reports. I find that I don't quite know who to believe on things. Um, I What I know is that Belichick is an asshole. <laughs> I mean, everybody agrees mm-hmm. with that that he's tends to be kind of a nasty guy. So, I mean, is, is this story, I missed it this morning. Is it that he missed an in-person meeting with Brady after Brady decided to leave or when they were still trying to get Brady to stay? I'm not sure. I haven't, I haven't dug deep and I'm avoiding this. He said, she said post-divorce. Right. Drama to a degree. It's not that interesting to me. So I don't know the details, but yeah, these are not. I don't look at these guys and say, "What a couple of emotionally honest individuals." I mean, that's <laughs> that's, that's, not what that's not what we're dealing with here. So it's like, well, yeah, there was X amount of bad blood. They dealt with it in with Y amount of ego, and it was over. So I mean, so that kind of ends it for me. But you know, it's always- and, and I took that personally. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been my opinion. And like I, I don't know these guys personally, but based on my takeaway from them, that if Brady thought that the New England Patriots were the team that were going to give him the best chance to win a Super Bowl, 
Mm-hmm. And they offered the same amount of money as, and from what I understand, they offered him the same amount of money that Tampa Bay offered. Right. That he would have stayed. That the main reason that Brady left was that this team had drafted badly mm-hmm. and the talent around him had declined to the point where this was no longer his best chance to win and it was time for him to go on to somewhere else. Now, I think that based on what we know about Brady and what's important to him, that is likely a bigger reason for the departure than bad blood with Belichick. And you don't think Belichick would take that decision personally? Oh, I agree. Belichick (laughs) would take that personally. Right. I'm saying I don't think Brady thought Belichick is a dick. I've Mm got to get out of here. Right. My guess is he would, if he felt that the Patriots still had as much talent as they'd had three or four years before, that he'd be like, oh, I guess Belichick's a dick, but I guess I'll put up with it and win some more. I think he looked at the team that they had around him in 2019, and uh, maybe he understands better than a lot of players do the idea of defense regressing (laughs) to the mean. And he looked at the offense that he had, and he went, uh, I want to play with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. I would rather throw to Mike Evans than in Keel Harry, yes. <laughs> and, where, and where Belichick comes in is that Belichick being a dick caused Gronk to quit. We're really, we're really maybe like... Brady, maybe Brady knew if I go elsewhere, Gronk will come out of retirement and play with me again. Or maybe and that's another weapon that I won't have if I go back to New York. Or maybe Brady was just fed up of dealing with the dick. Too. I mean, because it's a, it's almost like there's a there is a thin line here between he's a dick and also uh, he hasn't gotten me the receivers and and support that I needed. Comma that dick. I mean, that's, a, that's there's a, there's a place that you, motivations can get complicated when you've worked together for years, and and there might be you know you might be splitting a hair here to make it like uh, Brady was being 100 percent professional about this. You know, I, I don't know. We don't know. That's the problem right. is we don't know. Right. I, I also think that 15 years from now, they will have made up. Oh, of course. No, they're going to they're gonna hug at the, on their uh, induction. I think Bel- Belichick, Belichick and Brady will, will introduce each other for the Hall of Fame. I think that they will come back for all the reunions in New England. Uh, and Gronk will come back too. And in right. 10 years, this is all going to be water under the bridge. Yeah. That's... <laughs> You can say that about so many things in life, though. <laughs> uh, Bill Houston said, said "dick" a lot today. By the way, he have said "dick" a lot of times on this podcast. Yeah, I, I apologize uh, for our bad language. Uh, I don't. Eli, is Eli Manning? Where's Eli Manning when we need him? Uh, this is on video. No giving the bird. Uh, Bill Houston says, "Gentlemen, in your years of covering football, what was the least prepared team or coaching staff that you ever covered, and were the coaches able to turn it around, or am I presently watching the least prepared coaching staff in real time with Urban Meyer and the Jaguars?" Now, I first of all, Mike covers teams, has gone to camps and covered teams in the locker room much closer than I am to have a thought about this. And certainly in history, in history, my first thought is Steve Spurrier. Thank you. Thank you. I was dying here. And the thing is, I didn't cover him live, but I know someone who played for those teams and was has shared stories at length. And the stories involve, oh, there's a snow flurry. I'm going golfing. Coordinators, you can run this. And that was kind of that was kind of the mentality when Steve Spurrier was coaching in Washington. So I think those teams were unprepared, and they were unprepared because that coach was still of the mentality that it was like, well, you know, I go on recruiting visits and things like that. I'm the old ball coach, and I get the boys in here, and I teach them how to throw bombs, and then I can go play golf. So that would be on the list. I see Tom Sula with the 49ers. That's Bill Houston suggests that. Never heard stories there too, but um. I mean, I, Rivers, you have some stories happening as we speak, right? About unprepared coaches or no? I would go with the Bobby Petrino Falcons. Ooh, absolutely. Bad. I, I don't know if the talk is that the Texans have unprepared coaches. Well, they did in 2020. <laughs> That's what happened. Right. As much as this is a, as they have a head coach that nobody else was considering for the position, and they've got a really weird organizational dynamic with Easterby, but I don't think it's that Cully doesn't know football or isn't prepared or that their coordinators whose names escape me right now aren't prepared. Tim Kelly, Lovey Smith. 
Right. I mean, I know you feel Lovey Smith's a little behind the times. He's very behind the times, yeah. Um, but I mean, that doesn't make him like a bad coach as a person, as a right. motivator. Uh, I mean, but basically, all he does is go up there to the mic every you know Thursday, and be like, "Got to get more turnovers. Yep, we got to do it. I believe this is the week where we're going to do it. We've been practicing it hard, and <laughs> if that doesn't work, then they are screwed. But <laughs> if it does work, they sure do look good. How do the practices look? Do the practices look like they're running, like effectively? They've looked more competent than they did under uh, the last administration, for sure. Uh, Anthony Weaver was the DC, but that was always very weird because Romeo Cornell took over and then kind of changed from like 3 4 to 4 3 in the middle of the season, mm. which was never going to work out and just looked like a total disaster. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a very low bar, but they're going over it. <laughs> right. And that's the thing. Well, I think of an unprepared team, like in my brain, that those stories are sparrier and it's like, Got to be home by six, uh, you know, to have cocktails at seven, which like NFL coaches don't do. And you kind of see that on the practice field and hear that that's how the practices were like. That's what I think of on that end. Yeah. The Urban Meyer thing is tough because – not tough. It's just come – it's happened. It's come out so much exactly like everyone said it would. Right. It it never happens like that. Like stuff never happens exactly as everybody predicted. But my – God, has it been like exactly what everybody predicted? Yeah, it's 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 terrifying how exactly on brand every element has been. I remember trying to write the Jags chapter this year and kind of cover that up with, oh, well, Trevor Lawrence is like a generational quarterback prospect. Let's talk about that. What a good guy, man! He looks like he's gonna throw bombs over the place. He can do it all. This is amazing. Oh crap! Here's a uh, here's here's a uh, here's Urban. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, Jay Molnar 94 says, it seems like motion, play action, and fourth down decisions are in vogue as the analytics edge right now. Mm -hmm. Do you see any new topics coming up in the near future? Well, I guess if we knew where analytics gave you an edge, then that would be the new topic. Like, it's still to discover um, what the, the, where you can get an edge through analytics we don't know what the next thing is because if we knew what the next thing is, we would instantly all start talking about it. And as far as in-game, you know, as far as in-game planning, game strategy, um, I think that there are likely other hooks in the Shanahan and McVeigh offenses that we're not thinking of what the hook is mm-hmm. that make those offenses so good that we should be able to identify and show that they matter. Right. But I can't think of what those hooks are right now. It's not just motion and play action. I I think it will come down a lot to the uh, tracking of the player data as far as where they are on the field. Because, like, you can say – you can have a rule in your offense. Like, if it's three by three on the left side, we can't throw a wide receiver screen. But if it's three by three on the left side and then two of the players are playing ten yards back or – five and eight, then maybe you have enough data over the years crunched up to be like, well, there's a 17% chance that he gets past the first guy and a 35% chance that he breaks tackle. And, and, you know, you kind of just ball that all up together. And then you have like uh, a new application of this data in, in a way that is analytical. Right. I think you're right. It's like we need to granulate in a different way that now we have motion sensors on the players and things like that. And that's what we're going to say. Yeah, the tight end going in motion does this. Two tight ends the same type side of the field increases your probability of this, decreases your probability of that. All those types of things are, I think, are going to be emergent. But that's I think that's down the road right now. We're still trying to get Joe Judge to not punt. And the 39-yard line on fourth and four, and then to say, well, Bill Gates isn't coaching this team. That's what we're trying to do. We're still fighting the rear guard action, folks. Yeah, well, we had an amazing event last weekend. Okay. Because we had, for the first time I can remember, a coach go for it with his gut when the numbers said not to. Hmm. Which one was that? Brandon Staley at the end of the Chiefs-Chargers game. Okay. Where the numbers said to kick the field goal on both fourth and four and fourth and nine. Right. And then at the end of the game, the numbers said to sit on the one yard line and kneel twice and kick a field goal. But instead, Justin Herbert apparently audibled mm-hmm. and Mike Williams for a touchdown, which gave Patrick Mahomes the ball back with 50 right. seconds. Right. Um, and usually coaches go, well, you know, I know the analytics. 
But you also have to consider like what plays you have to call and who the players are on the field and how they've been doing that day and blah, blah, blah. And they always use that excuse right. to punt. Yes. <laughs> and, and or, or kick a field goal. And Staley did the opposite. His gut said, go for it. Right. Even though the numbers said kick a field goal. And I don't remember that ever happening before. You know what? No matter what the analytics say, they're just going to do the opposite. No matter. <laughs> no matter. But that's interesting because that is, I mean, to be more aggressive than the analytics is rare. That is. That is unusual. Yes. And, and, was, and, and the reason he basically gave was his gut. Right. Like, we suck on special teams. I just didn't want to put the field goal kicker out there, even for a chip shot. And, and I just yep. felt like Herbert could get it. And it was, he, he, it, you never hear a coach use his gut in that way. Yeah. You get a DPI and you're great. <laughs> it was, it was great to hear that he has watched the last three years of Chargers football and understands <laughs> special teams can't be trusted. <laughs> yeah. So, we were going to talk today about, the Western uh, divisions, and we've gotten enough good questions that we haven't really yet, but my God, are the Western divisions good? Yes. I mean, right now, the four NFC West teams are all in the top 12 of DVOA. The AFC West is not quite as good in DVOA, but I think we all believe that, first of all, we all believe that the Chiefs are better than DVOA things. Right. We're only 15th so far this year. We all believe they're better than that in the yes. long run. We also all believe the Chargers are better than DVOA thinks, partly because the Chiefs are better than DVOA thinks, and therefore the Chargers' win over the Chiefs is more impressive than DVOA thinks. So the Chargers are 22nd, and I feel like we all believe they've played better than that this year, although they are 32nd in special teams, so the more things change, the more they stay the same. But what what thoughts do you guys have about the the really like the dominance of the Western divisions this year? It's been interesting to see how many of these teams actually improved a lot this offseason. Mm -hmm. Like the Broncos could have done this Drew Lock thing and, and you know left it off to chance. They brought in a competent, steady starter, surrounded him with good players, run more play action. And I know it's early, and I know that. The Jets are the Jets, but <laughs> they look a lot better. They look a lot, you know, they don't have to be a dominant offense to be a good team. They can have a, you know, top 10 DVOA on offense or a top 15 and still win 10 or 11 games. Like they're that good. I'm still trying to really find the level of some of these teams. I'm trying to find the level of the Broncos, for example, who yep. have played uh, the, the out of conference schedule that, uh, that Steve Sparrow made for them. Yeah, um, you know, a big reason why I played around with adding opponent adjustments earlier than usual mm -hmm. was the Broncos. Was the Broncos? Was the Broncos? And they have played very well. And then I look at it, and it's like, well, Hamler is now injured. Judy's hurt. Uh, Chubb is hurt. So they, like they've got they're, they're losing guys one by one. And it's like, well, I, I'm not even going to see them at full strength. And I think they're going to start falling off the pace a little bit uh, in the weeks to come to the Cardinals to a degree. I'm still trying to find the level of them. I think that they are the chief's light because they're like winning with the, with the huge play, huge play, huge play, but they're a team. They've got this win last week against the Jaguars who look kind of unprepared. You're right. They had, they needed 62 yard field goal one way, missed field goal the other way. Otherwise they'd be two and one still a very good team, but not being talked about the way they are right now. So, you know, I, I'm comfortable with the Rams, obviously. The, the Cardinals thing, by the way, they destroyed Tennessee. Yeah. How yeah. much is that about Tennessee is not as good as people think versus Arizona is better than people think. That's hard. It's hard to know early in the season. Right. And it was such a snowball game too, where it's just like things went wrong in the first quarter and just, it was kablooey time uh, for Tennessee, yeah. but. And then Chandler Jones just kept getting sacked after sack after sack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. You're, you're, you've got a left tackle who shouldn't be on the field because he's not ready. He, he's like the Carson Wentz of left tackles. He's trying to play through multiple injuries and can't. Oh, <laughs> Carson Wentz, man. Tom, <laughs> Tom, Tom Camilleri asked, "Will Denver achieve a Chargers level of injury luck this season?" The, uh, first of all, I think that it's the 49ers level yeah. of injury luck that you want to talk about. Last year's 49ers. And, I mean, they've lost some big players. Bradley Chubb, uh -huh. Hamler, Judy. Um, I think Ronald Darby is injured. Yeah, I think, yeah. 
Um, so they're getting a good start on it, but you I mean yeah. you never know until it happens. That's the thing about injuries. That could be it. Like they, they could be healthy the rest of the year for all we know. That's true. And then you, and you've got this Raiders team that's three and zero, and our metrics don't like them. I watch them and I don't like them. And then they're they won. They win the game at the end. I don't understand that. You don't want to be the injury prone team in any of these divisions because you're not going to be able to keep pace. You're not going to be able to say, oh, we can overcome the injuries next man up. Not when everyone's pulling away from you. You can do that in the AFC South. You can do that in the NFC East. You cannot do that in these divisions. Yeah. Um, S. Vanderpool asks, so far, what team has surprised you the most and what team has disappointed you the most? Hmm. Um, I would say disappointed the most. Um, I guess, well, I mean, I'm a Patriots fan, so the Patriots. Yeah. Honestly, if not for that fumble by Damian Harris, they're two and one. So it's not that disappointing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's what is really one bad game. Um, Pittsburgh, I thought would be better than this. Yeah. You know, we had them as the number one projected defense. And their defense has not been. And if their defense is not in the top three or four, then they suck. Because their offense is yeah. – I mean, I thought it would be bad, but I didn't think it would be as bad. I mean, Roethlisberger just <laughs> looks like hot garbage. <laughs> I mean, it's actually – 24th is better than I would have expected, given how Roethlisberger looks. Right. Uh, what team has surprised me the most positively? I mean, the Carolina Panthers. Panthers, yeah. That's the easy answer for sure. Yeah, that's it. That's that's a, that's a slam dunk that it's the Panthers. I was like, I'm the, I'm a Matt Rule skeptic. I'm a Sam Darnold skeptic. I'm still a Panther skeptic to a degree, but they have been very very good. And they, they whipped the Saints, and the Saints have yeah. played very well in their other two games. Right. Although the Saints have no offense, we're they're doing more smoke and mirrors. I the fact that they have nothing on offense. They're getting turnovers, getting the ball to the ten yard line, punching it in. That's their that's their offense right now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> a question here from Tifi. T F H L. Tifu. Tifu. Schwabler. Anything y'all and your and or the numbers see that's not horrible about the Jets? <laughs> Pass. <I'm, laughs> I watched the Jets. I watched the Jets Broncos, and my brain was evaporating. There, like their three and outs go so quickly and have so little to them that they disappear out of my brain. So the only thing I, the only time I, I see the Jets and I perceive anything that's happening is when they throw in it, when Wilson throws an interception to JC Jackson or something like that. I, I mean, I don't know if there's anything in the stats or anything other than 25th or whatever. They're 16th on defense. Nice because teams are tootle around on them. The, the, the Patriots are tootling around on them in the fourth quarter. Right. And I think the Broncos are tootling around on them in the, in the fourth quarter. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think, um, I still have optimism for the Robert Sala administration. Yes, I agree. That's not in numbers. That's mm-hmm. subjective. But I still think they hired good people. Yeah, I agree. LaFleur's La younger brother is the offensive coordinator and Robert Sala coordinating the defense. And we knew going into the season that this team, that they, they did not have an NFL talent level the coaches had promise. And I think after three games, I still feel like this team doesn't have an NFL cat co- uh, talent level, but the coaching has promise. Yeah. You, you know how those there, there are those teams every year who draft the high rookie and then they sign like a veteran guy to back him up, teach him the offense, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like this is the guy that the Jets are missing right now because Zach Wilson does now look remotely ready. And right. he looks like he's, you know, almost regressing in front of our eyes and that he's trying to do too much now mm-hmm. or he's trying to, you know, take the coaching pointers. And then all of a sudden, like his hip will be out way too early on a throw and then it'll just go into those seats. Like it's 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 ugly. And I mean, they're going to take lumps because of that. And that's a choice that they made in advance. And so this is this is this is our results. Yep. It brings up the question of if you put the rookie in and he's terrible, does he learn bad habits that will hurt him down the line? Right. Right. I'm and that's sure. a potential there. I don't I don't worry about that with New England. I don't worry about that with Mac Jones at all. Yeah, veteran coach, veteran head coach, veteran offensive lineman. He's not under siege. He's not going to get bad habits and potential injuries ingrained. It could necess- it could happen with Wilson when he's trying to throw to nobody, being blocked by nobody, and it's always third and fifteen. Although again, when I the Jets played the Patriots, I felt their offensive line was better than I expected. I mean, particularly run blocking, but yes. still no Mackay Becton 
and they played reasonably well, I thought. The offensive line was much less of a weakness than I thought it would be. Wilson just was freaking throwing it all over the place. At the same time, I think if they wanted to attack, they could have. I mean, I think right now it's like, you know, we, yeah, just rush with four four guys, play man two or whatever, just wait for the mistakes, win the game. I don't, yeah. I don't, I mean, the offensive line is okay because there's some good veterans on there. Um, but I wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's a building block, especially with Becton Hurt. Anytime you have Zach Wilson back there slinging it like he is right now, it's a Lovey Smith game. <laughs> yeah, Lovey Smith can handle this this particular situation. Yeah. All right, here's our last question for the day. Corvos, of players on IR set to return this season, which one do you expect to have the biggest impact upon their return? Well, I don't know if Curtis Samuel's back in Washington yet because that's uh, been a – I believe this is the week that he can come back, but we don't know if he's yeah. going to come back. Yeah, that's a free beer. He's on the Josh Doxson train in Washington of always being ready next week to come and make an impact. But they need more. They need more on offense. They need yak on that offense. Um, and and again, they have not looked good. They looked terrible last week. Um, but but you know they can still win that division. They can still do something in this horrible division that the Eagles and Giants and Cowboys play in. So that's one guy. Another guy who I don't think is an IR. And again, I guess these are not IRs, but I, I lose track. I what? No, Samuel is on IR. He is on IR. Okay. Yep. Um, the the Seahawks, who I guess we're going to talk about more tomorrow, trouble in the secondary, trouble on the back end of their defense. They're ready to promote Sidney Jones, the former Eagles high draft pick, former University of Washington player, at cornerback to try and give him a little more depth at cornerback. Um, and that's a big deal for them. You know, perennially, the, the Seahawks do not have a good nickel package, do not have a good dime back package, and they need it. Because they're going to be facing the Cardinals and they're going to be facing the Rams down the road, and they, you know, they need bodies against the uh, uh, the 49ers this week. He's somebody that if he steps up and plays close to his potential, he played pretty well last year. Plays close to his potential, he could top the Seahawks. I will say, obviously, it was only three games, um, but you could see you could see a real difference in that Panthers defense once J.C. Horn got hurt. Yeah, when they broke his foot and they kind of took him out, they became a lot more passive. They became a lot more uh, zone heavy, and yeah. I do think that will cause them problems short term and right. have a big impact when he comes back. Yeah, I don't know how long broken foot. I, I'm assuming that's more than three weeks, but I'm like, yeah. also assuming he'll be back this year. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that that's the case with him. And of course they got the same problem on offense where McCaffrey's out. Oh, that's our game plan. So they've got to figure these things out and they got to figure out on the fly because the Cowboys are coming. My thoughts were McCaffrey is, I think a good one. Bradley Chubb. Yeah, that's right. He is coming back. Um, And Tua. I mean, we don't know. We don't know who Tua is, but we know who Jacoby Brissett is. Mm -hmm. No, you're right. He's. I, I kind of forgot he existed, uh, <laughs> which is bad. I mean, not, it's bad for me professionally, but it's bad for how Tua has progressed so far that he disappears and, like, the storyline around him also poofs away. Um, but, no, you're right. He's obviously and, – and this is a Dolphins team. Speaking of quarterbacks with storylines, they're facing the Colts this week. They're still on the hunt. They're still, they can still be a very tough out. They can still be a playoff team if they get better at quarterback, if they get better at a couple other positions. Yeah, I'm going to say I watched a lot of the end of that uh, Dolphins-Raiders game, and I didn't really think Jacoby Brissett was notably worse than Tua. And that's probably not a great sign. No, it's the same. It's the same. They're trying to run a short game. So they're trying to do a lot with the short game. Oh, my God, so much short game. Jalen Waddle this week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, 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 and Waddle's getting tattooed in the end zone, in part because you know Casey Hayward's just like, ah, I see what's coming. But also, the linemen don't get out on these screens. The linemen do not get out on these screens, so they're running out to block for Waddle or block for Fuller, and it's a sieve. Like defenders are just coming through them on the short game, and it's similar, and it's the same problem I think you saw in week one where, oh, it's third and ten, forget about it. It's going to be a jailbreak against the quarterback. Brissett is not particularly mobile. Two is a little more mobile, but neither of them are, are going to be mistaken for Lamar Jackson anytime soon, and get the punting unit ready because this team is not built for that. I love when the team that will not say who is calling plays calls terrible plays, and then all of a sudden there's nobody who can be accountable. Strange how that works. <laughs> By the way, Matt Nagy said he's not saying who's calling plays next week. They're keeping that internal. Oh, God. <laughs> Ten seconds before we went on air, if you guys heard me laughing, it was Matt Nagy's going to keep it internal. You don't know who's calling these plays. And, like, I almost fell out my chair. He's keeping <laughs> secrets for – 
No reason. No yeah. reason. Yeah, yeah. This is that's scheme. He doesn't talk about scheme. It's a HIPAA violation. You can't ask me who's calling plays. We we can tell who's calling the plays by how good they are, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. All right. I'm gonna wrap this up, guys. Thank you for coming. Yes. Uh, thank you all for watching the show and for listening to us on the uh, Football Outsiders uh, podcast network afterwards. So I'm Aaron Schatz, Mike Tanier, Rivers McCown. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock Eastern with our week four preview show. That's going to be me, Mike, and Cale Clinton. Uh, and we will try to uh, talk about, in fact, I'll bet you we really want to talk about a lot of games that are not Brady returning to Foxborough. Good, good. Thank talk, you. We'll talk about that one for a couple minutes, but mostly we're going to talk about other games that are not Brady returning to Foxborough. Yeah. And like, the Cowboys, like the Cowboys and the Panthers. Ooh. All right, so that's tomorrow, 1 o'clock Eastern. Thank you again for joining us on Shots of Tanya from Football Outsiders, Football Outsiders Podcast Network. Have yourselves a good night. We'll see you tomorrow at 1 o'clock.